Well, good evening. And I uh, hardly need to speak after Sadie's story and testimony. And maybe let's challenge some of us very deeply. You know, there's power in the blood. There's also power in evil. The blood can break that power. People get sucked in so easily. And it's as we come back to the Lord Jesus Christ and know that his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead faced, defeated, and conquered all the powers of hell. And we can be freed and liberated. I want to say it's been great joy to be here these few days. I, I don't say that because it's a courtesy and you're supposed to say that. <laughs> but it really has been marvelous to be here and to sense the environment and the work that God is doing here as in Sadie's testimony, as in testimony we heard on Sunday night, as in many of the stories that are here in this tent this evening. There are, in all possibility, those of us who don't know Christ yet. We are interested in Christian religion, but we have to go beyond that to know Christ as a person. Christianity is saying, as the Apostle Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Not know, I know what I have believed. If you know what you believe, can sign off on the creed and the doctrines. That doesn't make you a Christian. It's coming to know whom you believe and developing that living friendship and experience with him and of him. And uh, I hope you're going to come back on Wednesday night and pack this tent with... Uh, Five people, I think, coming down from Toronto. Kellen Jones is going to be leading that time of uh, worship and music and praise. Is a, is a, is a godly young man. I, I say young because that's because I'm old. Uh, when he's here, you won't think he's young. Uh, but he's a, he's a man of God. And uh, I'm so glad he's coming to be here on Friday and uh, fill this place with worship and praise. And also, not just the experience of that, but because God often reveals himself to us in praise. I, I noticed, by the way, and I won't show you this, not very long ago in reading through the book of Acts, that every time God spoke to people in the book of Acts, it was when they were praying. Every time. And as we open our hearts to him, he speaks. And maybe... On Friday night, the Lord will speak to us in, in ways that are clear. I'm driving back home after this meeting to uh, Stouffville, on the north side of Toronto. You know, I realized today only because um, I was making uh, somebody, for, for a good reason, I was just writing out my schedule for the next year, and I realized this is my last speaking engagement in Ontario, part one, in the next 12 months. I, I, I travel all over the place, but uh, people stopped inviting me in Ontario for some reason. <laughs> Except you folks. Yeah, I, I've got, I'm going to be involved in a conference on evangelism in two weeks' time in Toronto. 
for pastors and leaders, and it's organized by the Billy Graham Association, and they've asked me to speak at that. That's my the only speaking engagement in my diary in Ontario. I'm going to Alberta next week, uh, and then the week after, I'm across in uh, Halifax in Nova Scotia, and I'm back in Toronto for that event. And then I'm back in Ontario and Western Canada and back and forth. I'm in the States, back here. I'm in Europe a few times, in England, in Australia in the new year. I'm going to be in Asia twice in the next year, but not in Ontario. So I'm really, really glad that uh, I'm going to be, uh, that I've been here. What were you going to say? Nothing. Lord willing, you're back over summertime. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but it's been lovely to sense what, what God is doing here. Now let's get down to the task in hand, and we're going to turn back to the book of Galatians uh, for this last message. And uh, remember, we based everything so far on Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. We talked about that on Sunday morning. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We talked about that on Sunday night. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We talked about that on Monday night. I live by faith. I do not set aside the grace of God. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And last night we looked at that verse in particular, talking about the law. Now, the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, and I gave reasons for that, but the effect of the law is to reveal the failure of humanity. And the weakness of the law is it can demand what is right, but only externally, whereas the gospel is the Spirit of God coming to indwell us internally and through us expressing the character of God. That doesn't mean we are passive, we just sit back and don't do anything because the life of the Spirit of God in us is expressed through a disciplined body and we learn to live in conformity with the work of God. Now, for this evening... I was going to look in verse 3 of chapter 3, which we also read on previous evenings. Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The implication of that is, of course, having begun with the Spirit, you are to continue with the Spirit. Instead, they were living by human effort, and we talked about that the other night as well. And uh, there were two ways I could have gone. One way I thought I'd talk about tonight, which I prepared and planned and wrote up my notes. I then felt that isn't, that isn't right. And uh, another aspect came to me that I felt I should speak about tonight, uh, just earlier today. I felt this was the right thing. And it's to go a little bit later in Galatians, to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 and 17, which continues this theme after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to 
attain your goal by human effort. And Galatians 5 verse 16 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, that is the old nature that is there within us. For the flesh, the old nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under law. Tying again in with what we said last night. And what he's saying here is this. That when the Spirit of God comes to live within you, he comes to live within an old, broken, natural nature, which Scripture calls the flesh. By the flesh doesn't mean the physical body, but it means all that I am in myself apart from God. In other words, God indwells me, but the me he is indwelling is by nature broken, we're all broken, and sinful. And that nature does not disappear in this life. Hence, he says, there is this battle going on between the spirit and the flesh, they are in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want to do. And this is a statement that's true for every Christian in this tent here tonight, including sin. <laughs> and the rest of us. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, there begins a civil war in the soul. I live with that every day, and so do you. Paul talks about this quite a bit in Romans 7, and I'm going to read you what he says there. And some of you will recognize this, Romans 7, I'll read you from verse 15. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Does that make sense? In other words, he's saying, there's certain things in life that are good, and they're right, I know they're good, I know they're right, I agree with them, and I intend to do them, but I don't. And there's certain things in life that are wrong, 
I know they're wrong. I say to myself, I will never do them again. But you never guess what happens. <laughs> I do them. Anybody here got that problem? Just, uh, just raise your hand. Uh, a few honest people around. It's a problem you have. It's a problem I have. Notice an interesting and a very important thing that Paul says in verse 17. He says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living within me. And then in verse 20, he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Well, that sounds like a convenient cop-out, doesn't it? Oh, it's no longer I who do it. No, 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 I didn't do that. No, it's sin living in me that did that. I mean, if we got into a conversation later and for some reason I pulled back my arm, clenched my fist and punched you in the nose and said, oh, sorry, no, I didn't do that. I, I didn't do that. It was sin in me that did that. Would you, would you accept that? Especially if I did the second time. Oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't me either. That was sin in me that did that. You probably say, listen, chum, there's a bit of sin in me too. Pow, and you probably thump <laughs> me back. What does Paul mean when he says... It's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. And by the way, compare that verse with Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. It's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Interesting. Make that comparison. What is preeminent within you? What does he mean? Well, he's not talking of sin as actions here, but sin as a principle. In fact, uh, he speaks in verse 23 of what he calls the law of sin. I see another law at work in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. That's in Romans 7, verse 23. The law of sin, a bit like the law of gravity. If I let this pen go, it's going to fall. Not because I give it a push, I can push it the other way, but there's a natural law. In the heart of the earth, it says what goes up will come down. And Paul says there's a natural law in me that we have to understand if we're going to understand ourselves. And that natural law is bias, if I may put it, towards sin. So much so, he says in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, in my natural self, that is in my flesh. I don't have the ability to be what I know I need to be. I say I will, but I don't. I say I won't, but I do. If we don't know that about ourselves, we'll try to refine ourselves. We'll hold on to the hope that maybe one day we'll manage to change. We'll make promises to God about how good we're going to be starting from tonight. And despite the greatest intentions, we will fail. But don't be too disappointed by that because you and I will never be a bigger failure than the one God already knows that we are. You see, we may become disillusioned with ourselves, but God never becomes disillusioned with us for the simple reason he doesn't suffer from any illusions in the first place. <laughs> he knows exactly what we're like. He knows the corruption of the human heart. And the biggest problem you and I have is going to be ourselves, our own heart. You see, be very careful of blaming the devil for your sin. Now, the devil is active and evil, and we've heard a little bit about tonight what will be demonic influences. 
But the book of James, chapter 1, verse 12, says, Each one is tempted when by his own desire he is dragged away and enticed. By his own desire. James 4, verse 1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your evil desires, a battle within you? See, temptation comes from within in many instances. I know the devil is active. But temptation comes from within. I mean, temptation by definition, by definition is attractive, isn't it? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. You know, I'm never tempted to walk in front of a moving truck. It's not attractive. I have been tempted to push somebody else in front of a moving truck, sometimes, depending who it is. By definition, temptation is attractive. And every sin I commit, do you know why I commit it? Because I want to. Why do I want to? Because it's attractive to me. I may be full of remorse and regret and repentance afterwards. But temptation, by definition, appeals to my natural desires. And if the devil died tonight, you and I would still sin tomorrow. Because of this old nature, this broken nature we have. It's very interesting in the New Testament. I, I did a study on this a little while ago. I did a, did a series of messages called Who's Who in the Cosmos? <laughs> you know, what's going on out there? Who is Satan? Who are demons? Who are angels? And all of that. And uh, I looked at all the references to demons in Scripture, and there are 32 references in the Gospels and the Acts, leave aside other references, 32 references to demons and evil spirits, and they have all kinds of physical powers. They can make a person blind, another person dumb. They could give severe pain. They could bring physical suffering. They could give a man unusual strength. He could snap chains like cotton. They could give a man convulsions. They could throw a man to the ground. They cause somebody to act as though they're insane. They can drive pigs into a sea. They can predict the future. But I'm intrigued to observe that demons were never credited with moral power. In other words, nobody ever committed adultery because of a demon. Do you know why they committed adultery? Because they want to. That's the reason. I had a friend who was speaking at a church in the south of England, and he didn't tell me this, but uh, one of the leaders of that church told me this. One night after he'd been speaking, he was speaking for several days, a bit like this week, a lady came to talk to him and said, would you pray for me? He said, certainly, what is your need? And they sat down together, and she said, I am troubled by demons. He said, tell me more. He said, she, she said, I have a, a demon of pride and a demon of greed, a demon of lies, a demon of envy, a demon of lust, a demon of this and the demon of that. She added a whole string of these things. And my friend said to her, you mean to tell me you have a demon of pride and another demon of greed 
another demon of lies, another demon of lust, another demon of this, another demon of that. She said, yeah. He said, that's remarkable. She said, why? He said, because I can do all those things all by myself. I don't have a single demon. Every one of those is my problem. Lady, he said, your problem is not you need exorcism, you need repentance. And the leader of that church said to me, that lady went to every visiting speaker with the same story. He was the only man who talked sense to her. Now, I know things can become strong and they can become addictive and they can become such that we think, oh, it must be demonic. It isn't. It's you. Demons are never credited with that kind of power in scriptures because sin comes from within. It is we who are corrupt by nature. Hence, I know that in me there dwells no good thing. The Living Bible says about that verse, I know I'm rotten through and through. <laughs> now, this is really encouraging stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're really glad you came tonight because this is just what you needed. But we need to know this to know something else, that there's something which is equally true that is the complete opposite of this, and that is that the Holy Spirit who came to live the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in you is the complete opposite of everything that we are by nature. We are incorrigibly bad. We love the bad. He is incorrigibly good. He comes to place into our hearts a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. He's the opposite of what we are by nature. Hence, when a person comes to know Christ, the battle that takes place. Let me read you a couple of verses from 1 John, which uh, uh, may throw some light on this. 1 John 3, verse 9. John writes there, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, what do you make of that verse? The one born of God will not continue to sin. He cannot go on sinning. 1 John 5.18, same letter. He says, we know anyone born of God does not continue to sin. What do you make of those two verses? One born of God does not sin and will not sin and cannot go on sinning. Does that mean you know someone's really born of God because they become perfect? Well, John also in the same letter says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's a contradiction for you, if you like. Same writer, the same letter says the one born of God does not sin and will not sin and cannot sin. But if anybody claims to be without sin, he's kidding himself. What do you make of that? I met a man once at the end of a meeting I was speaking at. And uh, he came and told me that 15 years earlier, God had given him a clean heart, as the phrase he used. And he said, and by the grace of God, I have not sinned for 15 years. 
well, I'd never met anybody who hadn't sinned for 15 years. So I, I didn't know what to say to him. So I said, that's remarkable. That's amazing. You haven't sinned for 15 years? He said, by the grace of God, he's kept me. So I said to him, are you married? He said, yes. I said, is your wife here tonight? He said, yes. I said, would you point her out to me? He said, well, she's the lady with the red coat on over there. Why? I said, I'd like to talk to her. He said, what about? I said, about your sinlessness. She broke into a smile and said, she doesn't agree with me. <laughs> I said, really? Why doesn't she agree with you? He said, because she defines sin differently to me. When anybody claims sinlessness, I've usually redefined sin, by the way. I said, how do you define sin? He had an answer. Hebrews 10.26, if anybody sins willfully after they've received knowledge and forgiveness, etc. He defines sin as willful, sort of getting up in the morning. He didn't say this, but kind of getting up in the morning and saying, today I'm going to have a really good sin. Which one shall I do? <laughs> well, I hope none of us do that. My problem is, I say, today I want to stay clean. Boom. But what does John mean when he says what he says? The one born of God does not sin and will not sin and cannot sin. At the same time, he says, if anybody claims to be without sin, he's deceiving himself. Well, there's only one satisfactory answer to this, and that is to be found in asking the question, who is born of God? And understanding the answer that John himself gives is that the one who is born of God is Jesus Christ born into you. Because the life that you and I receive when we're born of God is the life of Jesus Christ. John tells us that. 1 John 5 verse 11. This is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. Why? Because the life is the life of the Son. He says in 1 John also, the same letter, 1 John 1, 2, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared to us. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Well, what has he seen? What has he touched? What has he handled? It was Christ. The life appeared. It was in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says in 1 John 5.20, He is the true God and the eternal life. So John explains himself there. The life you have received, the eternal life you have received, is the life of Jesus Christ that comes to live within you. And that life does not sin and will not sin and cannot sin. And John says in that same book, 1 John 3, 5, in him is no sin. So he's reaffirming that same thing. But he comes to live his sinless life in a sin-broken body. So if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. But there is one living in you who is sinless. And that is the eternal life he comes to live within you. And by the way, you probably know 
the word eternal and the word everlasting are two different words. If you look up in the Oxford Dictionary, which sits on my desk at home, it defines eternal as being without a beginning and without an end. It defines everlasting as without an end. It presupposes a beginning. So there is only one eternal life that has no beginning and no end, and that is the life of God. And when that life comes to indwell you, we become everlasting. We had a beginning. So we, re we receive everlasting life by the reception of the only eternal life that there is, which is the life of God. So Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life. Not the gift from God where God is the giver. God is the gift, the gift of God. He is the eternal life that comes to indwell us. And so as Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 4, we participate in the divine nature. He comes to indwell us. And so now we're caught in this dilemma. We have a life indwelling us that is sinless and pure and will not sin and cannot sin, but he's come to live in a life that in this life on this earth continues to be broken and its appetites continue to be corrupted. Let me read you what Paul said again in Romans chapter 7 and, and just listen, just listen as I read it and see if you can pick up a recurring word. Gives us a clue to what he's saying here. Listen carefully. We know the law is spiritual. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. Know the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Anybody pick up the word? <laughs> I'll try to give you a clue. <laughs> 38 times in 10 verses. I, me, I, my, I what? I delight in God's law, he says. I want to do what is right. I find myself doing what is wrong. I try to do. It's I, I. This is a man in these verses saying, this is what it's like if I try to live the Christian life. I, 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 me. And he comes to the point of despair saying, what a wretched man I am. And then he asks this question, who will rescue me from this body of death? Not what will rescue me, is there a program I can ha go through? Is there an experience I can have? These things are on the evangelical marketplace all the time. They always, 
They don't work, they don't last, so something else comes along. <laughs> but that isn't the question. The question is, who will rescue me? And he answers his own question, thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, somebody else has to do this. And then two verses later, in chapter 8, verse 2, which is the next chapter, but Paul didn't write the chapter divisions. This was added in the wrong place. <laughs> he says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So I'm trying to live the Christian life by my best scheming, my best discipline, 38 times, I, 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 me, 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 and ends up in despair, and I say, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Is there somebody? Yes, there is. Thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ, and the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin. Remember the law of sin like the law of gravity. There's another law now, more powerful than the law of sin. He says, it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and it's that life in me which sets me free. Let me tell you a story. Some years ago, I did a week of meetings in the city of Cape Town in South Africa. We ran from Sunday down to Friday in a week. And I was looking at Jesus in the upper room in John 14, 15, 16, 17. And Jesus talked there, one conversation with his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he talked about the fact that I myself do nothing myself. I'm in my Father, my Father's in me, and the words I speak to you and the works you see is the Father in me doing his work. And he was saying this about his relationship with his father as a man, because he was a true man, in relation with his father. The words you hear me speak, the works you see, the miracles, they come from the father working in me, because I'm in him and he's in me. And then he said in chapter 15, now, you are in me and I am in you. And if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. For without me, you can do nothing as much as he said he could do without his father. I of my own self can do nothing, he said. So I was talking about this and how that the Christian life is not a life we live for God. It's a life he lives in us. And from that perspective there in those verses, in those chapters. And on about, I think it was a Tuesday night, a guy about 30 came to me at the end. He said, you know, I've been a Christian for several years. I've never heard this before. And I said, what have you heard? Well, what I've heard is that now I'm a Christian. Do your best for God. Live for Jesus. And you're telling me that it's Jesus living in me. And I said, that's exactly it. He said, it's, 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 it's exciting me, but what do I have to do to make it work? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm not a zombie. I don't just sit back and say, well, it's not me, it's Christ, so just go on, we'll do it. What do I have to do? I said, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But you're jumping in the gun. Come back tomorrow night. We haven't finished yet. End of the next evening, he came to me again and said, look, I'm even more excited about this, but I still don't know what I have to do to make it work. What, tell me what I have to do. And I said, come back tomorrow night, Thursday night. 
on Thursday night, he came to the end of the meeting and said, I still haven't understood what I have to do. Can I meet with you tomorrow? Can I meet you for breakfast? I said, I would love to, but tomorrow morning I'm going to be speaking at a businessman's breakfast. You're welcome to come, but I don't know if we'll have time to talk one-on-one. -on -one. He said, well, can I meet you after that? I said, well, actually, after that, I'm going to the Bible Training Institute of South Africa, as it was called, which is in Cape Town. I'm speaking at their chapel, and uh, I'm going to be there for the rest of the morning, speaking to the students. He said, well, can I meet you for lunch? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to the YWAM training school, and I'm speaking at their DTS, their discipleship training school, having lunch with them and talking with them after lunch. I said, it's a full day tomorrow. I said, but I'm free at four. He said, ah, I start work at four. And I work right through in the evening. I can't come tomorrow night. I said, well, I'm sorry. It looks as though we won't be able to meet. So he said, well, ah, I really need to talk to you. So I'm sorry. And he went away, and then he came back and said, are you really free at four? I said, yes. He said, well, I start working for but I'll tell you what I do. He said, I'm a helicopter pilot. And every Friday afternoon, one of my jobs is I take up at uh, 4.30, a policeman and a radio announcer. All the traffic leaves Cape Town on a Friday night. And we fly around Cape Town for about an hour and a half. And uh, the policeman reports on the flow of traffic back to his headquarters. And if there are delays or accidents or blockages, uh, he can report it from the air. And every 15 minutes, the radio announcer gives a traffic report from the air, from the helicopter. He said, it's the most boring thing I do every week because I can fly around Cape Town in two minutes and I have to keep this going for about 90 minutes during the peak rush hour time. He said, but there's a spare seat in the helicopter. Would you be willing to come? And then we can talk. I said, I would love to come, even if we don't talk. I'd love to fly around Cape Town in a helicopter. He said, well, can you come to the helipad at 4 o'clock? I said, yes, I'll try and do that. I'm finishing at YOM. I'll get them to bring me down there. He said, we'll have you back in time for the evening meeting, which is at 7.30. So I came, got out of the car, and he was there waiting for me. And there on the ground in front of us was this big, sturdy-looking helicopter on four wheels with a big shaft and big blade on top and tail and big about the back. It looked as though you could see 10 people or something in it. I thought, my, that's a pretty good-looking helicopter. And we walked around it. And as we walked around it, on the other side was what looked like a glass bubble on skis with a, a kind of wire mesh going to the tail with a little propeller on the tail. <laughs> a, a shaft, not much thicker than a microphone shaft, coming out of the center of the helicopter and a propeller on top. And, and I looked at this little thing, and I looked at the big thing, and I said to him, which, 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 which is our helicopter? <laughs> he said, the little one. I said, the little one? Man, that, that's so small. It looks so you 
don't get in. You look as though you put it on. He said, no, it's fine. I fly that all the time. I said, man, that's making me nervous. It's like it's just a glass bubble. You can look through your feet. He said, well, you can see what's going on. I said, I don't want to see what's going on. He said, well, look, we've got half an hour. You have to sign a paper to say I'm not responsible for you. And I said, why? He said, it's just a formality. And we'll have a cup of tea. And the other folks will be here in half an hour. And then we can go. So I went in with him. And we sat down, had a cup of tea. And I said, tell me how this thing works. How does this thing work? He said, well, because I said, it looks so flimsy. He said, well, how much do you want to know? I said, well, just try and keep it simple. But just explain. He said, well, there's some... Some, contra- some conflicting forces. For instance, there's weight and there's lift. And if the weight is stronger than the lift, the helicopter won't take off. And so when those blades begin to rotate, they create a vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum. And so it lifts the helicopter. And when the lift is stronger than the weight, you begin to go up. And then there's the other conflicting forces of, of thrust and drag. And if the thrust is stronger than the drag, you move forward and so on. He tried to explain it like this in some way. And I tried to look intelligent and say things like, yes, uh uh-huh, really? And when he finished, I said, what do you call that? He said, well, that's the whole principle of aerodynamics. Lift over weight and thrust over drag. I said, okay. So now tell me, what do I have to do to make this work? He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not a zombie. Do I have to flap anything? He said, flap anything? What are you talking about? I said, well, I noticed the birds flap. Do I have to flap anything? He said, are you joking? I said, yes, but you know something? You just explained to me what I've been trying to explain to you this week. There's a thrust in you. I didn't use this language that we've had tonight, but there's a thrust in you called sin, the law of sin, Romans 7, pulling you down. And there's another thrust called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And I said, you said there's weight and there's lift. And I said, you've said if the lift supersedes the weight, the aircraft will take off. And the thrust supersedes the drag, it'll move forward and you'll begin to fly. I said, Paul says there's a problem that we all have, that we have this weight called the law of sin, like the law of gravity pulling us down. There's another force called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that sets us free. I said, I think Paul must have been sitting in a helicopter when he wrote that verse. (laughs) The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me from the law of sin and death. You've said to me the law of aerodynamics sets me from the law of gravity. He said, it can't be as simple as that. I said, why not? He said, because I keep failing. I said, yes. As long as I stay on the ground, I keep falling over too. I keep on the ground. I can jump as best I can, and I might get two feet off the ground. I need another power. That's the whole point. Anyway, we took off. We flew around Cape Town. There wasn't a lot of traffic, so he showed me a few sites, went around Table Mountain, all kinds of things. And after we landed, a couple of hours later, I said, you've been demonstrating the whole principle. You see, it's not that when this aircraft takes off, because I said to him in the aircraft, in, in the helicopter, I said, what's gravity doing now? He said, what do you mean? Has it given up? <laughs> no, it hasn't given up. Gravity is totally committed 
to smashing this helicopter on the ground. The moment I cut the engine, boom, we're down. I said, in the same way, the law of sin is totally committed to smashing you to the ground. You rely on your own resources, on your own strength, and you're in trouble. You make promises to God, I'll do it for you, and you'll weep tears over that, because you won't. But as you rely on a new power, a new source, a new strength, he sets us free. And actually... I went back to that. I went back to Cape Town for another week of meetings about two years or three years later. This would be now back 20 years ago, I guess. And he was there on the first night and said, do you remember me? I said, of course I remember you. We went up in the helicopter together. He said, you know, that week changed my life. I said, why? Because I came to understand. He didn't use these words, but this is what he came to say. It's not I, but Christ living in me. Now the point is this. Gravity never gives up. You're constantly conscious of it. When we sit on the ground and see a plane flying over the sky with a vapor trail behind it, you look and say, wow, isn't that beautifully smooth? But you can be sitting in that aircraft, and I've sat in many aircraft where we've gone through violent turbulence. Other people look at you, you look at other people, I look at other people and say, man, they seem to be doing so well. But actually, they're going through turbulence too. We find this drag, this pull, this battle that takes place. You see, it's not a case of an aircraft eradicating gravity, of course. It's counteracting gravity. We deal with sin not by suppressing it. If you try to suppress your sin and you manage to do that, you think you've got it conquered, but unfortunately, it'll come out when you least expect it. You won't have it conquered by suppressing it. We can't eradicate it, whatever that man told me. is <laughs> counteracting. That is, that we live with the tension Today I'm capable of committing any sin in the book. If I didn't believe that, I'd be a fool. I'm capable of it. In the right circumstances. But every day, Lord, I'm depending on you. I'm depending on you. And when you fly in an aircraft, not for one moment, when I was in the not for one moment, was I able to fly. I couldn't fly. I was being flown. Why was I flying? I was in the aircraft. You're in Christ. You can't, you can't do this alone. That's why I never ask God to give you strength. You know, we often say, Lord, give me strength. No, Scripture never speaks in that language. The language of Scripture is things like this. The Lord is my strength. Psalm 5, Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and my song. I jotted some verses down. Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord is my strength. He is my shield. Psalm 118, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Isaiah 12, the Lord is my strength, my song. Similar verse. Isaiah 32, verse 2, O Lord, be our strength every morning. Habakkuk 3:19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, enables me to go on the heights. 
The aircraft doesn't give me strength. It is my strength when I fly. I can't fly. This life is a supernatural life. It's in our union with Christ. So, how do we make it work? Let me read you what Paul goes on to say in Romans 8. In this section here, he says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Notice the place of the mind there. The mind on the things of the Spirit, and they live by the Spirit. On the mind on the things of the flesh, and they live according to the flesh. You may know that the word repent is a Greek word that combines two words, metanoia, meta to change, noia, the mind, the nous, mind. Repent literally means to change the mind. I sometimes ask people, is repentance something you feel, something you think, or something you do? And if I ask a group of people, and if I have sometimes, you know, only two or three say it's something you feel. The vast majority of repentance is something you do. But actually, repentance is something you think. It's a change of mind. It'll affect what you do, of course. And the act of repentance, whereby we become a Christian, becomes the attitude of repentance by which we be the Christian we have become. Those who have their minds set on the Spirit live according to the Spirit, says Paul there. That's why later in Romans 12, Paul says, be transformed by renewing of your mind, not because it's a psychological process, but your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. That's why you read the Scriptures. That's why we meditate on them. How does a young man keep his way pure? David asks in Psalm 119. He answers it by guarding it according to your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not my head, but my heart. I might not sin. He says here, the word of God keeps our minds on the things that are true. And as we trust him and we believe him, we will go through turbulence, but we will, we will fly. They have a testimony like Sadie gave us. The transformation wasn't a new leaf. It was a new life. And going back to Galatians where we started, when he says about this battle of flesh and the spirit, he also says there in Galatians 6, following on that, the one who sows to please his flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let's not become weary in doing good. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So he says there, if you live in the flesh, you keep sowing to please the flesh. You plant things of the flesh into your mind, into your heart, into your experience. You have a little place where you little greenhouse where you keep your sins and you try and lock it off from other people, but they flourish in there. And I think what uh, Sadie said about bringing things into the light is so important. And then you hide and bury, by the way. 
because you think it's hidden, it's going to flourish because you think it's private. And one day when you least expect, it'll break out. Now, don't sow to the things of the flesh. This is a battle. But sow to the Spirit. And he said, and be patient. In due course, we'll reap a harvest. You know, my background is farming, and some of you are involved in farming. And, uh, you know, farmers have to be patient, don't they? You, you, you plant a seed, and you don't come back next morning and then dig it up and see how it's doing. You wait. And my eldest daughter was little, only about two or something. We had a little garden at the back of our house, not very big, but planted a few vegetables, and she was out there with me. And I was explaining what happens. You know, you put the seed into the ground, you, bury it, you cover it up, you leave it, and then one day, suddenly a carrot is going to, oh no, that goes down, so a bean is going to come up. And she said, can you plant some ice cream? <laughs> But you have to be patient. You reap a harvest, he says. If you wait. And we are the last people to see what God is doing in our lives. That's why don't be too introspective. Don't look into don't get up a spiritual mirror and say, Am I being spiritual today? Oh my, I'm really being spiritual. That's a sure sign you're gonna collapse and fall flat on your face. No, if you and I, if I look inside myself, I see an old nature alive and fighting and battling. It's other people who see Christ, you see. Yet your light shine before men, that they see your good works, and they give glory to your Father. They look at you, but they see him. We don't see that in ourselves. A very godly man, I'll finish with this, a very godly man who I knew and had a great respect for, he had a stroke, was in hospital. My wife and I went to visit him. And he was in a wheelchair next to his bed in this hospital ward. And he was quite a big man, but he'd shriveled down to almost nothing. He was sitting in this wheelchair, so thin and shriveled. He used to be a, a rugby player. You know what rugby is? That's, that's proper sport. That's that's That's... American football with no gear, just muscle, <laughs> brawn. He used to be a rugby player. But as we talked to him, he said to us this, I have never known such spiritual warfare as I'm experiencing in this wheelchair. He said, there are battles I thought I'd won decades ago, but they're back. He said, I didn't know my mind was so dirty. And I felt a little bit embarrassed. I didn't know what to say to him, so I said something silly like, well, you've given the devil a hard time for many years, so now you're weak, he's putting the boot in. But that didn't help him. <laughs> when we came to leave, we prayed. And when he prayed, his voice that was frail became strong, and he prayed as though he knew God, because he did know God. We went out into the corridor, met a nurse coming the other way. She was coming to see him. We'd been given a certain amount of time, and then she said, I'm going to come and attend him. So we left, and as we passed, I said to her, thank you for letting us in. You look after him, won't you? She said, oh, yes, we look after everybody here. 
I said, I know you do. But he's a, he's a special man. And, and she was walking past, and we were walking the other way when this conversation was made. And then she stopped. And we stopped. She said, you're right. He is special, isn't he? And I said, well, we think so. So we do as well. So we were talking about him in the staff room. Everybody loves working with him. And nurses love working with him. She said, what is special about him? I said, well, you know he's a Christian, don't you? She said, oh, yes, we have lots of Christians here. I said, what do you think is special then? And she said, when we were discussing him in the staff room the other day, one of the nurses said, I love spending time with him. His name was Alan. I love spending time with Alan because whenever I spend time with him, I come away feeling clean. And she said, yes. When she said that, we said, that's exactly what it is. There's something about him that's clean. And as Hillary and I walked away, we said to each other, isn't that wonderful? Alan says, I've never known spiritual warfare like I'm experiencing in this seat, in this wheelchair. Battles I thought I'd conquered it back. I didn't know my mind was so dirty. And the nurse said, why is he so clean? See, she saw Christ. He couldn't see that. We don't see Christ in ourselves. But she saw that. And I know and love this man. He had his own issues in his life. He had his own battles in his life. I know that. But he was a man who was saying, I depend upon the Lord Jesus. I depend on him. But man, isn't there turbulence here? Like an aircraft going through turbulence and we down here say, wow, isn't that beautiful? Look how smooth that is. She saw Christ in him. So my message to you this week has been that as we are crucified with Christ, our sins have been dealt with and we're justified. We're indwelt by his spirit. We live in dependence on him. He in us fulfills everything the law demands, which is to reproduce the character of God. But we're the last people to see it because of this battle. The flesh fights against the spirit. But the spirit sets us free. The law, the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin. And it's the prerogative of other people to see that better than we do. Our job is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Our job is to reflect the Lord's glory as we're being transformed from one degree of glory into another. Because our focus and our dependence is on him. And what happens is, for those around us, we let our light shine before them. They see your good deeds and they praise your Father. Now, one last thing. Some of us here tonight may not yet know Christ in a personal, living way. We may have all kinds of doubts that have stopped us believing he will live within us. Maybe things that have uh, bound us in the past. We say, can I really believe? Can I really believe that Christ 
will break through all of that and live in me? And the answer is yes, you can. And we've heard it tonight very beautifully expressed, very powerfully expressed in Sadie. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer now. Most of us here have known Christ in a way that will be liberating to you and a rich blessing to other people. But you've got to trust him. You've got to believe him. You've got to thank him that he will do that. Let's pray together. If there's any who've never fully surrendered your life to Christ, would you do that this evening? Just in simple words like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I am broken forgive me I've tried to get myself healthy before I come to you and I can't do that I come just as I am thank you you love me please forgive me thank you for carrying my sin in your body on the cross you can forgive me please do and come and live in my heart and help me to believe that you're there and to trust you and to experience you. Not me doing things for you now, but you doing things in me. And make me a new person. And if you prayed those words or words like that, I want to pray for you. Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight whose heart you've been drawing to yourself. We cannot say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you have been doing that in the hearts of some here. I pray tonight you'll give us the, give to them the deep assurance that the Holy Spirit will bear witness with their spirits, their children of God. Help them to break through all these barriers that stop them believing that and to trust you. And believe you're bigger than all those barriers and obstacles. And help all of us, I pray, as we seek to live in the place you've placed us, in our homes, in our families, with our friends, in our workplaces, in this church, or whatever church we're part of. Help us, we pray, to live in the fullness of the Spirit of God, in dependence on you and obedience to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory.